Inflammation is quite a nebulous term for many people. Imbalance, it's a wondrous part of the human immune system. You can have inflammation and not have autoimmunity, but all autoimmunity is inflammatory. It's hard to hear your intuition when there's so much noise going on in the form of inflammation. So you really have insight and discernment on what's working for your body and what's not. Feeling great is a place of freedom. Knowing what works for your body is food peace. Feeling better more than I missed that food that made me feel really lousy. What can you do today? to start feeling better. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Today's episode is on a topic near and dear to my heart, inflammation. Although maybe I focus on it too much. I know my therapist is often like, Melanie, not everything is necessarily related to inflammation. (laughs) But in any case, this episode is really an eye-opener when it comes to understanding the role of inflammation in the body and how it can manifest, particularly in autoimmune conditions, which can exist on a spectrum. One of the things that people often experience with autoimmune conditions that we discuss is you might be trending that way or have markers of it, but basically what you're often told by the conventional medical system is come back when it's officially an autoimmune disorder. I'm not a fan of that approach, more about taking things into our own hands, so I think you'll really, really enjoy this conversation. There will be a full transcript of this episode in the show notes that will be at melanieavalon.com slash inflammation. I'm also doing an episode giveaway. It's super easy to enter. All you do is join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something that you learned in this episode on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. If you're enjoying the episode, make sure you subscribe in iTunes. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. That way you'll get the episodes downloaded automatically and also help support the show in the iTunes charts. Not that rankings and position matter, but they really do sort of help with spreading the podcast. And while you're in iTunes, if you'd like to write a brief review, that would also mean the world. You can also follow me on Instagram. I do a lot of fun giveaways and a lot of fun stuff there. One super duper important resource for you. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. So I am so excited about the conversation that I am about to have. I have been long, long awaiting it. It is with the author of two really incredible books that I have thoroughly enjoyed. The first was Ketotarian. I'm sure a lot of my listeners are pretty familiar with that one, which was really unique in that it brought a plant-based approach to keto, so I found it extremely valuable. And when I was introduced to the author who I have here today, Dr. Cole, originally I was thinking, oh, you would do Ketotarian, but he has a newer book. The Inflammation Spectrum, Find Your Food Triggers and Reset Your System. And friends, it is speaking, I don't know if it's a good thing that inflammation is one of my passions in life, but it is speaking to a topic that I just think is so, so important. And honestly, when I saw the title, The Inflammation Spectrum, I was like, don't let your hopes get up because I wasn't sure if it would live up to, because normally what I do is I, I go through like Google Scholar and I read all of these 
really intense studies. And I was like, I really hope that it really dives deep into what's going on with inflammatory conditions that we have today. And it 100% delivers on that, but in a way that's very easy to read, very easy to understand. And then it gets even better. It has a whole protocol to follow. And it brings in something that listeners know I'm obsessed with, which is the super duper importance of mindset. It even has mantras you can use. I mean, this book is just such a wealth of knowledge and information. Cannot recommend it enough. I'm here with Dr. Will Cole. Thank you for being here. My goodness. Thank you so much. I appreciate the kind words and I'm excited to talk with you today. Really, really looking forward to this. And for listeners, you are honestly a leading functional medicine expert in the country. You've been nominated one of the top 50 functional medicine and integrative doctors in the nation. You are a consultant and expert for Mind Body Green, for Goop. You're just all over the place. And yeah, so I'm really excited to dive deep into your book today. Thank you. To start things off, though, before we get into the whole science and the health and all of that stuff, would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your own story and what brought you to where you are today with functional medicine, health, and especially, you know, first the topic of ketotarian and now the inflammation spectrum? Yeah, sure. So the books are really just an extension of my clinical practice. My heart and my passion, my focus, and my day job hasn't changed over the past 11 years. I run a functional medicine clinic online. It's a telehealth clinic. So since really the beginning of my career, I've just been doing webcam consultations and giving them a functional medicine perspective on their case. So Ketotarian is just really a story of my food journey and then seeing the potential pitfalls of the conventional ketogenic diet and, and my sort of approach to it in a cleaner way, a more of a nutrient-dense whole foods way, hence ketotarian. And then same with the inflammation spectrum. It's really just a ripple effect of my clinical experience and seeing the far-reaching implications of inflammation in all its you know insidious ways for people. And so how I came into the health space I really grew up in a home that was, the, my parents were really interested in health and wellness. And we're talking about the 80s and 90s in rural Pennsylvania, which is by no means an epicenter for wellness even today, but definitely wasn't in the 80s and 90s. But I was like the weird kid drinking adaptogenic tonics and like raw goat's milk and like all those strange healthy stuff from the 80s and 90s. But yeah, I mean, like, so it was definitely from the beginning, I was in that world, my dad was a bodybuilder and like Mr. Pittsburgh and like in natural healthcare as well. So that was sort of my formative years of, of looking at the worldview of health and wellness. Then I knew that I wanted to be formally trained in it. It wasn't just something that my mom did, my dad did, my family did, but it was something that I really wanted to be academically trained in it as well. So I went to an integrative school in Southern California, called Southern California University of Health Sciences. And then I heard of a guy called Datis Karazian. And anybody that's listening will know that Datis Karazian still today is one of the leaders in functional medicine. He'd gone to my school. He was older than I was. And that's how it, for me, honed in from integrative, like sort of natural healthcare, alternative healthcare to specifically functional medicine. It just clicked for me. And it was like this beautiful amalgamation of the best of Western medicine, which is being evidence-based and, and running labs and looking at the data and then the best of alternative health, which is 
getting to the root cause, going upstream and actually dealing with these underlying components to why people feel the way that they do. So I graduated from school knowing this is what I wanted to do. And that's when the telehealth clinic really started literally as soon as I graduated, because I'd be talking about it online, writing about it in different states and countries. People would be like, okay, and that's me talking about autoimmunity. Like he knows what I'm talking about. And yeah, it it hasn't changed. So from 8am to 6pm, Monday through the end of the week, that's that's what I'm doing, consulting people online. And that's how I came to be all these years later. I know I look young, but I'm not that young, guys. So that's that's what I do. I love it so much. And I had to tell you really quickly, I listened to your book on Audible. And when you started talking, I was like, this sounds so familiar. <laughs> Good job narrating, by the way. The inflammation spectrum? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I because I didn't read Ketotarian. The publishers were like, wanted this like expert, like whatever reader to do it. I'm like, I could read my own dang words. I, I know how to like, I wrote this, I can write, read it. So I appreciate that. It was a lot of work. You'd think it'd be easy, but it was difficult. I know. No, it is. And I remember because I had self-produced audiobooks before. And then when I released my book, like traditionally with a publisher, I wanted to narrate it and they made me audition. And then they only let me narrate the introduction, which was like really funny. But then I I was like, I know how much work goes into it. So it kind of was the best of both worlds for me. But yeah, no, I loved the narration. It was it was great. One more quick question that's really relevant to today. So since you do have the, the telehealth system set up, have you been, especially with COVID and everything, are you seeing a big influx with that? Yeah, it's pretty much stay the same. I mean, stay the same. It's people, I mean, maybe a slight increase, but not really. It's pretty much stayed the same steady for for the past couple of years. It's we're busy. We're very busy, but we keep a good doctor to patient ratio to provide quality care. And we have case review meetings on a daily basis, making sure everybody's getting the top care that they need. And I'm overseeing the cases and doing the consultation. So yeah, it's, it hasn't changed much, but our patients, it's so interesting that my patient base is very, for the most part, very specific autoimmune, what I talk about in the book, it's this larger autoimmune inflammation spectrum. That's my people. And those people, for the most part, are very, very unchanged by a pandemic. They kind of, I find this very fascinating that they, for the most part, are galvanized because they've gone through really serious health stuff and they kind of have to live their life as almost like a pandemic and a personal level in many ways, because they don't go around amongst society doing all the things that everybody else is doing. When you're going through things like fatigue or flare-ups in any way, you live a different life in a different lane. So when the rest of the world is so shook by something like this, these people are so amazingly resilient and strong that I think that's why I haven't seen a major influx or like increase of patients it's just stayed the same because these people are like pandemic what like other than like some people's jobs it's like for the most part they're not really shaken by that i find that fascinating but it's it's really interesting to see oh my goodness hearing you say that is resonating with me so much because my own personal story like the way i came to this whole podcast the biohacking the health thing was you know struggling with my own it started with digestive issues but my own chronic illness conditions. And living with that has put me on this relentless search to just find answers and to find, you know, the practices that I can do every day to support my immune system, support my mindset. Because I think one of the hardest things with 
a chronic health issue and autoimmune conditions, things like that is the fear of the unknown of not knowing if it's going to change. And I think with COVID for people who haven't had that constant fear of the unknown about their health, that's kind of what COVID is in a way. It's this fear of the unknown and not knowing if it's going to change, but it's not that it's funny that you say that, but literally when COVID happened, I was like, this is what, not this is what I feel like every day, but this is what I, you know, am always working on. And you've gone through it. Yeah. And when people are like, well, how should I change to support my immune system? And I'm like, just do all the things I've been talking about this whole time. I even was Googling memes, autoimmune, chronic illness, COVID, because I thought there'd be like other people thinking this as well. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I definitely see it going on. And I, thought it was be like, well, maybe one person, but like the more, like since the beginning of March when everything kind of went down, I've heard countless of the same stories over the past couple months at this point. That's so, so interesting. So I'm just, I'm really thankful for the tools that I do have right now for this time, you know, meditation, the spiritual purpose, the diet that supports me. So, all right. Well, I guess to start things off just with a broad picture approach, very large simple, but not simple question. What is inflammation? And because it does serve a purpose. So what is the purpose of inflammation and why does it so often go awry today? Yeah, it's a good place to start. I, I mean, inflammation, you're right. It is quite a nebulous term for many people, but the reality is it is quite specific and it has real life implications on a daily basis, but inherently it's not a bad thing. It's a product of our immune system. So in balance, it's a wondrous part of the human immune system. Inflammation in check fights viruses, fights bacteria, it heals our wounds. It's important for cellular health, cellular signaling, and cell membrane function. It's important to have healthy, modulated inflammation levels. The problem is when inflammation is thrown out of balance. So it's this forest fire burning in perpetuity. That's that's really the issue. And it's it's the Goldilocks principle, not too high, not too low, but just right. And that Goldilocks homeostasis principle applies to our microbiome. We want bacterial, we need yeast and fungus, but we don't want to overgrowths of it. We don't want deficiencies of it either. Same with our hormones. We don't want excess hormones. We don't want hormone deficiency. Same with our inflammation levels. We don't want high, we don't want too low, but just right when we need it. So when there's a virus that comes, we don't need inflammation to fight it off and to, and to repair things. But the problem is inflammation is just so out of balance in so many people, it's burning too long, too high. And that is really the commonality between just about every health problem under the sun, from autoimmune conditions, which is most of my patients, to Digestive problems, musculoskeletal issues, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, all are chronic inflammatory health problems. To even when you look at the epidemic numbers of mental health issues in the West, you know, we like to separate mental health from physical health, but the reality, it's not separate. Mental health is physical health. And our brain is part of our body and there's physiological components to mental health issues. And there's a whole field of research referred to as the cytokine model of cognitive function. Cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So it's research looking at how inflammation is impacting how our brains work or how inflammation is impacting mental health. And the old view of the brain was that it was immune privileged, that it was the blood-brain barrier. It was this nice casing around the brain and it was... Inflammation really was not a thing in the brain, but now research 
has confirmed that actually wasn't the case at all. The brain is not immune privileged and that we have the microglial cells or the brain's immune system where in balance, microglial cells help to clean up dead dysfunctional cells. It's like a pruning of the brain to keep it nice and resilient and healthy. That's inflammation in check. Microglial cells out of balance of the brain causes a cascade of neuroinflammation that's associated with a whole wide variety of neurological problems like anxiety and depression and fatigue and brain fog and neurological autoimmune issues like MS and Parkinson's and things like this. So inflammation is so important for people to realize because all those things I just mentioned, mental health issues, diabetes, autoimmune conditions alone, sadly is the majority of the human race at this point to various degrees. But it exists on a spectrum from mild symptoms on one end of the inflammation spectrum, like maybe mild anxiousness, maybe some bloating, maybe some weight loss resistance on one end of the inflammation spectrum. And then on the other end of the inflammation spectrum, it's the overt autoimmune disease or mental health issue or diabetes or something like that. And then everything in between. So this is really at the heart of my work, the heart of what I'm seeing on an hourly basis when I'm consulting patients online. While these numbers are sobering as far as statistics are concerned, the other side of that coin is that these things are largely overcomable and healable, reversible, supportable things. But we have to know what we're up against to do something about it. And many people are just have their head in the sand and they're not even asking questions because they're going about their life because these are chronic problems. So people can typically go to work, right? They can probably like function on a, you know, various levels on a day-to-day basis. So they equate that with M all right, or they'll say other than this problem and this problem and this problem, I'm in good health. <laughs> like they somehow can put it on a box on a shelf and say, other than that, I'm in good health. Well, these are all actually check engine lights that things aren't good, that it you aren't healthy. And we have to look at look at it to really determine and do something about it. But so that's really what the book is, to educate people on this and more importantly, to give them tools so they can overcome these health issues. So some follow-up questions to all of that. For listeners, for the inflammation process, just to clarify, because we spoke about how, you know, in check, it's a good thing. So when there is an inflammatory response in the body to a virus, a bacteria, an allergen, a food that you're reacting to, whatever it may be, so the negative side effects and symptoms that you experience, are they directly from the compounds that are released by the body to fight the invader or are they from damage that occurs to the body from those compounds? Like where is the actual symptoms and the damage occurring? Well, it's really both. When you're talking about acute inflammation, it's really a bit a bit, a bit of both. So the, the virus, for example, or any virus that you're talking about is going to have its own set of symptoms. And that's going to be the person being sick. But let's say the fever or the inflammatory response is the immune system trying to fight it. So that is both, there are both things going on. There's the body's response to it and then the actual symptoms from the pathogen itself, whether that's bacterial or viral or, or some other pathogen. Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. 
May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste, 
Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to melanieavalonscloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Would it even be possible for us to have autoimmune conditions if our body was never reacting inappropriately to something? Like, so like on the historical timeline of humans, did, you know, hunter-gatherers have autoimmune conditions at all? Or did it all start, you know, with, with modern agriculture? Like, do you think historically it was even a thing? I'm just wondering what makes the possibility of an autoimmune condition arise. Mm. Yeah, I don't know how far back there's data for that, but I would say you can look at, at where the timeline that we do have data, and you can't really ignore the fact that the numbers of autoimmune conditions are growing by leaps and bounds. And part of that's assures due to better diagnostics. And even today, the autoimmune diseases are widely underdiagnosed. But even amongst the people that are the most skeptical within the autoimmune space will say, yes, these numbers are growing. Yes, we're seeing a problem. There's really no argument in that, the fact that we are seeing more and more of these autoimmune mediated issues. And I have no doubt that as science goes on and time goes on, we're going to find autoimmune components to many different inflammatory health problems that we don't know are autoimmune even today. So today there's over 100 autoimmune diseases recognized in science and an additional 40 above that 100 that have an autoimmune component. And I agree with you. It's this evolutionary mismatch between our genome, our DNA, which haven't changed largely in 10,000 years, yet the world has changed very dramatically in a very short period of time when you're putting that in context with the totality of human history. So that's what researchers are looking at is this epigenetic genetic mismatch that's growing this chasm between the two are growing like never before. And this is what's awakening these genetic predispositions that have been there for 10,000 years, but lied in you know sleep and slumber that are being triggered and awoken like never before because of the onslaught of stressors that the immune system that the dna is under and that's awakening this immune inflammatory response so it's to say i have i really don't know i don't know if we have any way of knowing like if the ancient times how much the, the statistics of autoimmunity but i would say it's growing very rapidly in a very short period of time now and i would assume based off of the data we do have it would be rare 
in the past. It wouldn't have been the epidemic that it is today. But it's it's definitely a problem. And it's really a combination of factors. It's our food, it's our environment, it's it's stress, it's it's toxins, it's all of these these epigenetic genetic mismatches that we need to address. And these are things that I can measure on a lab as a functional medicine practitioner and find out what are these underlying drivers that's causing this molecular mimicry or this sort of immune immune system to lose recognition of self and causing an over overreactivity against certain parts of the body. I mean, it's so fascinating. And it's almost, it's, I feel like it's one of the most tragic health issues we can experience because being able to identify self, it's really a friendly fire situation. And I feel like it's the body trying to, you know, take care of itself and trying to be healthy. And it's just, it just goes awry. So could you talk a little bit about the actual inflammatory response? Because I know there's a lot of confusion and you talk about this so beautifully and brilliantly in the book, but there's a lot of confusion between the response the immune system can have when it comes to an allergy versus a food sensitivity versus a reaction and the difference between, I know listeners might get blood tests and they might get, you know, IgE versus IgM versus IgG. So would you like to talk, <laughs> put a little bit of clarity about what's going on there? Sure. Yeah. So that's a sidebar in the inflammation spectrum because those words are oftentimes used flippantly, interchangeably, and you know, not for it's not for any ill intent, but just we're just throwing those words around very, very casually. But the reality is, when you have a sensitivity and an allergy, those are in effect immune mediated. So an allergy is typically that immediate response can cause anaphylaxis. It's the food allergy that is immune mediated, normally really extreme, but you can have mild allergies too. There's a whole allergy inflammatory respect spectrum there. And then sensitivities are immune mediated, just like allergies, but they're more of a delayed response, oftentimes less severe, but not always. Sometimes you can have more delayed reactions that are severe as well. Those are the immune-mediated food reactivities. And then the third one is food intolerances. And sometimes food intolerances and food sensitivities are the ones used interchangeably. And to be honest with you, sometimes food allergies is used interchangeably with the other two as well. But food intolerances actually, by its very definition, is normally associated with an enzyme deficiency that's non-immune mediated. So a lactose intolerance is a lack of lactase, the enzyme that breaks down lactose, the, the dairy sugar, and then so on and so forth. There's the enzymatic deficiency. So that's a not, not immune mediated. So is it slightly semantics? Well, maybe, but it's if you're really looking at it, the problem that I see with this is that many people come to me with their initial consultation. They will drop box like the labs to us and we'll get the labs and they'll say to me, oh, I have an allergy. And then they're removing foods from their diet based off of this proposed allergy that they have. But what they really think that they have, it, what, what they think that's an allergy, but what really it is, is a food sensitivity or generally a food reactivity, as some people in the immune sort of diagnostic world will call it. It's immune mediated, yes, like an allergy, but it's not an allergy. So they think if they eat it, they're going to like really get sick and die. Well, not really. A lot of these food sensitivity testing, especially when you see multiple foods showing up higher, it's less to do about those foods and more to do with the intestinal permeability or the leaky gut syndrome that's causing the overreaction of that food. And not to say those tests are, you know, 
completely irrelevant. There there is some relevance to them, but it's to me from a functional medicine standpoint, my mind goes to, okay, what's actually causing the overreaction on on the lab to those foods in the first place, which is typically increased intestinal permeability. So my goal would be to heal the underlying gut reaction and untangle that immune response in the first place. Because honestly, and I've seen this many times, people go back and like the next week on on the lab, the same lab, they'll see different foods being positive. So what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go and jump around and adjust your whole diet based off a snapshot in time when you went to the lab at you know 7 a.m. on a Tuesday morning? No, it's really not very practical from a day-to-day, like what do I eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner standpoint. So I am not so much an advocate for those food sensitivity testing, especially for people using them at the beginning of their journey. I do think there's clinical relevance for them, for people that are like longer into their journey, they've calmed things down, they've been working on dealing with their gastrointestinal health, and then they may maybe run a food sensitivity testing and they can see, oh, it's like these three or four tests, these three or four foods that they would never have known if they didn't run that lab. We run labs like Cyrex has amazing data for that. But it should be used, these labs should be used clinically when it's clinically relevant, when it's actually going to produce an action step that's going to benefit these people's lives and not just running labs for the sake of it. You know, you know, biohacking is fantastic, but it should be used in context with like actually benefiting, not just adding data for the sake of it. And then honestly, I think a lot of those food, those food labs add to people's anxiety and stress. Then it's like, they're like, what the heck can I have? Like all these foods are coming back red and yellow or positive, And it's all the things that I eat. I can eat nothing, you know, but air and ice cubes and like low lectin bark and goodwill. It's not good. Stressing about all this healthy food isn't good for your health either. So I think it could feed unintentionally feed to things like orthorexia or this disordered eating around healthy foods. So these are the things I think too much about (laughs) for my patients. But that's the difference between allergies, intolerances, and sensitivities. I could not agree more. So I also am the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, and we often get questions about our recommendations for food sensitivity tests and everything you just said are my thoughts exactly. Like, especially because I think people, you know, maybe they'll get a test when their gut is in a really good situation and it'll show that they don't react to many foods. And then if their gut is not in a good situation, all of a sudden it seems, quote, seems like they have, you know, allergies or reactions to, you know, every food. And it's like, you know, what's going on there. And I've also like read about how, you know, they'll do the same samples to like multiple labs and get different results. And so it's like, okay. So one thing I say for listeners is, know your mindset and know how you react to this information. And if you're the type that's going to get it and feel empowered and, you know, like you will feel very positive from the information that you receive, then maybe. But if you're the type that's going to see it as like a a death sentence and, you know, doom and gloom, I'm just like, don't. (laughs) Maybe just maybe don't. Keep it simple. Yeah. Really, really quick brief follow-up. So IgEs, are, are people typically born with those compared to like the IgGs and IgMs? No, no, I, I wouldn't say that at all. I would say that they typically are found early on in life. And there's, of course, genetic predispositions for allergies and immune-mediated things like that. But it's not entirely genetic. There is some going, there's going to be some response going on in the microbiome or larger systemic immune response to cause those IgE responses. So yes, there's a genetic component for many of them, but that's not to say it's predestination and there's nothing they can do about it. And there are allergies that are triggered later on in life too. It's not just childhood allergies as well. So it's more than anything, it is the immune system 
and for, for allergies and sensitivities. And we need to say, what is upstream to these? What's causing these? And what can I do? Because I've seen people with genetic predispositions for these sort of immune-mediated responses, and they can dramatically improve the severity and the frequency of these flare-ups by dealing with these upstream components that's causing the overreaction in the first place. Okay. I love that. Yeah. The reason I was wondering about that is from the tests that I have done historically, my IgEs are very, it's a very small number and it's an environmental and food and it, it hasn't ever changed. It's like always the same on all the tests on all the labs, whereas IgM, IgE, IgG just seems to be all over the place. So and now I'm actually just thinking if I use the correct terminology, I developed an app called Food Sense Guide, and I refer to using it to tackle your food sensitivities. And it compares 300 plus foods for their general levels of amines, histamine, salicylates, oxalates, lectins, gluten, FODMAP, nightshades, thiols, and sulfites. And now you, you were talking, I was like, hmm, maybe this should be more called food reaction. I like it. Yeah. I mean, but you know what? Like I said, like part of it is semantics. Like it, people get it. It is a sensitivity. So it, it's just to me, I think more than anything, it's people realizing there's a difference between allergies and these other reactivities. Allergy is a reactivity, but not every reactivity is allergy. All right. And then, so, you know, we're talking a lot about how, you know, what can we do with this information and how can we make changes? Before going into like the protocol that you discuss in the book, you also talk about autoimmunity and the stages of autoimmunity. And one thing that I think I found so interesting was that, first of all, there were a few really like startling statistics, like the amount of the system in the body that had to be destroyed to be qualified autoimmune was, you know, often very high. So like it wasn't until you lost 90% destruction of your adrenals that you qualified for an autoimmune disease for that. So for listeners, what are the stages of autoimmunity and how long is this brewing before you finally get the official label of an autoimmune condition? Yes, this is definitely near and dear to my heart because this is a lot of my patient base, but there's three known like in functional medicine that way that we recognize this. There's silent autoimmunity on one end of the inflammation spectrum or autoimmune inflammation spectrum specific. So silent autoimmunity and then stage two would be autoimmune reactivity which is a lot of my patients, or stage three, autoimmune disease. So autoimmune reactivity is where you're having symptoms that has autoimmune components. You would see positive autoimmune markers, but it doesn't fit all the criterion to be considered overtly an autoimmune disease by mainstream medicine and give it an ICD. ICD-10 code in the United States, at least diagnosis code, and you know, given whatever appropriate action step conventionally. But the criteria... So you mentioned Addison's disease or autoimmune adrenal disease. There has to be, in effect, 90% destruction of the adrenal glands before mainstream medicine will label it as Addison's disease. Similar numbers for the MS with the myelin sheath or the villi with celiac disease or if you look at ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease. You look at all these sort of inflammatory autoimmune problems. Research estimates, and I put the study in the book, but basically four to 10 years prior to that diagnosis as when these things were brewing on the autoimmune inflammation spectrum. So they didn't happen overnight. When someone's diagnosed with whatever, interstitial cystitis or any other autoimmune condition you're talking about, it didn't happen the day before. 
didn't start the day before. It happened on average four to 10 years prior. And of course, there's exceptions to that. But for the most people, things were brewing on this inflammation spectrum for quite a bit. And it's this sort of reactionary approach to managing autoimmune conditions that a lot of people fall through the cracks of that conventional setting, which basically what happens when somebody's diagnosed with that autoimmune disease? What options are they given? They're given basically steroids or immunosuppressant biologics. And that's basically it. Other than things like IVIG and some immune therapies, for the most part, they're giving steroids and biologics. That's the majority of people with autoimmune disease and what they're given. And anybody on those drugs will tell you, for the most part, it's no walk in the park. It's no sort of utopian you know, solution. Now that they've been labeled with their disease, they have all the solutions in their hands. So my question is, and the question that I'm posing to the reader and to people out there is wherever you're at on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum or wherever you're at on this inflammation spectrum, what can you do today to start feeling better? So no matter if you're in autoimmune reactivity or autoimmune disease or in your silent autoimmunity and you just want to preserve your health and mitigate risk factors and just prevent all that stuff from happening. And it's also important to know, like we're talking about autoimmunity now, but you can have inflammation and not have autoimmunity, but all autoimmunity is inflammatory. So there's a lot of inflammatory problems that are not autoimmune in nature as well, but specifically to autoimmunity, since that is a lot of my patients, that's obviously a good topic as well. I always really like statements like that because they really make you rethink and reframe things. So I'm just thinking about that whole concept. And then for listeners, I guess I think most listeners think they probably know what autoimmune conditions are, but I think there are a lot of conditions that people don't even really necessarily associate with autoimmunity that I didn't even until I was reading your book, like, you know, things like celiac disease. I think people don't really associate that with autoimmunity or pernicious anemia. There's just, there's so many conditions that, you know, can fall into this. And it's very empowering, like you said, to understand that there is this timeline and this progression, but is it ever too late to turn the boat around? Even if, you know, if somebody finds themselves in this third stage and they've got the label of the autoimmune condition, is there a chance to reverse things? Absolutely. There's a chance. I mean, that's, that's what I do work-wise. And for people that even don't have functional medicine doctors, like there's so much tale and story and inspiration around people having agency over their wellness and reclaiming their life. There's a book that I haven't read fully, but I just know what the topic is. It's called The Other Side of Impossible. And it's about there are all these stories. And like friends of mine are in the book. Like I think uh, Terry Walls is in the book. She's, of course, reversed MS with and managing it and supporting it through functional medicine and food. And there's other friends of mine in there too that have autoimmune conditions. And then obviously the countless of patients that I've seen over the years, the body is just amazingly resilient and it never ceases to amaze me what the body's capable of doing. People that were counted as just, this is your lot in life. There's nothing you can do. And just take this medication, see you in six months, basically, see you in a year even, because you're just in this sort of maintenance phase of disease management. The body can overcome amazing things in many ways. So my goal is to, as a functional medicine practitioner, what's the best we can get this person's health? You know, how long have they been going through these health issues? What are they up against? What's realistic? Whether that's improving the body 50% or 100% or anything in between, that's way better off than getting worse. 
And that's really the question. So to say that, is there hope for them? Absolutely. But does that mean everyone with autoimmune disease is going to be 100% great and all everyone's going to be in remission and nobody's going to have any symptoms because of functional medicine? No, that's not true. But it's a step in the right direction, whether that is a little incremental, whether that's major, whether it's complete resolution of your symptoms, it's still a step in the right direction. I love that so much. Yeah. One of the sentences in the book that just has haunted me is where you, I don't know exactly what you said, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something about how oftentimes with conventional medicine, patients go in and they'll say, oh, you know, yes, you have these symptoms. Yes, you have this you know, potential tendency to an autoimmune condition. So come back in so many years and then we'll, you know, basically label you with the autoimmune condition. And that's just such a, like a helpless mindset. And I know for me personally, like my mom has a lot of autoimmune conditions and she's probably going to listen to this episode because I'm going to tell her. So hi mom. But she often, you know, would say it's genetic, you know, you inherit it. And I've just always bristled against that idea because I mean, yes, I know genetic tendencies towards it, but I just think there's so much potential to, even if it is a genetic tendency, you know, the epigenetics, the environmental factors, the the food you're eating, like, I think there's so much potential to turn the book around, to turn the book, (laughs) turn the boat around. So I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. So practically turning the boat around to give some listeners some tools. So one of the main things you do discuss in the inflammation spectrum is an elimination diet. And I think elimination diets, you know, benefit so many people, but there is skepticism often from conventional medicine, like, you know, what what can that actually do? And then also, I think there's a lot of fear or skepticism around elimination diets, because for a lot of reasons, like one, people will think, oh, they're too restrictive. You know, this idea, you mentioned it already, the idea of orthorexia, like it's not a healthy mindset. And then there's also this idea, I think people think doing the elimination diet will make them more sensitive to foods after. So would you like to talk a little bit about the purpose of an elimination diet and how you work with that with patients? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So And to your earlier point, that statement of like, well, basically we see an autoimmune condition way to get bad enough for us to give you a medication. Like, I wish that was not even, I wish that was hyperbole on my part, but I have heard that story so many times over the years so that they were told that what looks like lupus, this positive ANA, like basically we don't have a medication for you now. Come back basically when you get worse. My mom, all the time growing up, she would say that. She'd be like, oh, they said that, you know, it looks like it might be lupus or this or that. So just, you know, wait and see. It's like, it's like, what? Come back when we can give you Plaquenil or something like it. But so here's the deal with this is that I actually abhor the word elimination diet because it has such a negatively charged thing. I mean, even using the word elimination in it. So I completely like in my what my heart was at least to sort of break down that paradigm or break that sort of old archaic perspective on elimination diets and just give it a healthy facelift, if you will, because it's, it's shifting the paradigm from, okay, this is what you're eliminating to yes, all that stuff. Right. But shifting it to, whoa, this is not about eliminating foods. This is about eliminating feeling lousy. This is about eliminating inflammation. This is about eliminating fatigue. This is about eliminating disillusionment as to what's working for your body and what's not. So the goal for me is to really just 
Give your body time to center yourself, calm down physiologically speaking, untangle these inflammatory reactivities so you really have insight and discernment on what's working for your body and what's not. Because feeling great is a place of freedom. And knowing what works for your body is what I call in the book food peace, like having that that just freedom to know what's serving you and what's a saboteur. And so I agree with you. I think that there's a really a, a messed up, dysfunctional way to do an elimination diets. And there's a lot of conflicting information because there's a lot of different Im- elimination diets out there. And the carnivore diets, elimination diet, there's many other, AIP is a type of elimination diet. Yeah, GAPS is really a type of elimination diet. 30 is an elimination diet. I mean, I love a lot of these things and these are all tools that people can do. The point is, just using the term elimination diet, there's so many ways to do it. What I wanted to teach in the inflammation spectrum is let's take a functional medicine approach, a systematic, thoughtful, evidence-based approach to find out what your body loves and what your body hates. So the book starts off with a quiz that's adapted from questions that I ask patients. And then from there, they're going to get a track, two different versions of an elimination diet based off of where they're at on the inflammation spectrum. And then they have a specific toolbox depending on their quiz score of things to focus on. So if they're higher in the gut section, they're going to have gut supporters. If they're higher in the hormonal section or the brain section or the musculoskeletal section, they're going to have different tools in their toolbox. So that's the way that I wanted to do it. And for anybody that's read the book, they'll know like the ethos of the book is really not being punitive or obsessive or dogmatic about anything. This is really about finding out what your body loves and what your body hates. Because I'm actually a fan. It's a funny word of saying I'm not a fan. I'm an advocate. I'm a, a proponent of intuitive eating. But when the body's in a state of inflammation and imbalance, it, there's a lot of noise in the body, proverbially speaking. It's a lot of just chaos in the body. And anybody going through that will tell you, yeah, it's pretty chaotic. It's hard to hear your intuition when there's so much noise going on in the form of inflammation. Is it intuition or is it hangriness? Is it intuition or hormone imbalance? Is it intuition or underlying microbiome issues? It's so hard to tell is lack of discernment. But when you calm things down, settle things down, untangle those reactions, then you can hear the still small voice of your intuition. And you know, well, I, I feel so good eating those foods and I don't feel good eating those foods. And it's not being, oh my gosh, I can't have all those foods. It's that, no, I love feeling better more than I miss that food that made me feel really lousy. But you don't know that until you've calmed things down and actually know what your body truly needs. So you can eat intuitively. So I'm just using this tool at the beginning to get to a place of food peace, to get to the place of of intuitive eating. But believe me, anybody on the other side of the, the journey, when they're just starting out in, in a state of reaction and somewhere on the inflammation spectrum, they won't be able to eat intuitively because there's so much disorder in the body. So they have to use this tool for a time, not forever, to calm things down, to center themselves, to know what actual intuitive eating looks like. That made me so happy. I mean, that is exactly how I feel. I'm literally, I just think intuitive eating is ideally the way we should all be eating. I mean, I mean, that is like the key, but I think it's so hard for people to eat intuitively when their body's in a state where, like you said, they can't properly hear. It's like they can't really hear what's the truth because there's all, you know, there's all this inflammation clouding things. 
And then, you know, a lot of foods like processed foods and things may feel intuitively good in the moment, but, you know, it's not really what's going on there. So, yeah, I think that's one of the biggest struggles. I think it's really sad because people, you know, they'll want to be able to eat intuitively, but then they might feel like failures when they try because they just can't find the foods that are working for them. And if you're eating foods that aren't working for you at that moment, I think it's, you know, it's such a such a battle. But one of my favorite things about the book is you mentioned your toolboxes and you have these these different toolboxes to address different areas where you might be experiencing inflammation. So, you know, the brain, the digestive system, other areas, and you end every toolbox section with a mantra to tell to yourself. And I think there's so much power in there surrounding the mindsets. Things like, for example, like in digestion, you say, I'm in perfect balance and I trust my gut. And I, I just thought it was really, really amazing. So I, I'm so glad that you're coming from that mindset. Can I touch on that real fast, if you don't mind? Oh, please, please do. Oh, yeah. The other component of the inflammation spectrums protocols in the book, it's not just about eliminating food. It's about focusing on the foods you can have. And it's all these non-food inflamers too, because you could be eating super clean, but serving your body a big slice of stress every day, and that's raising inflammation. Or maybe it's a lack of sleep that's raising inflammation. So in the book, you've obviously read it, so you know, but for people to know, there's multiple non-food inflamers too that we're also working on over these weeks during the elimination phase to calm down inflammation in that way too. Because it's not just about what you're serving your body in the form of breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like, What are you serving your spirit? What are you serving your mind? And all of these things from screen time to social media addiction to lack of sleep and blue light, all the research looking at these other epigenetic modulators of our biochemistry will also bring inflammation levels up. And thanks for bringing that up. I forgot to mention that. That was one of my other favorite things about the book. You know, you went into the importance of the social aspect and the whole factor going on. Like one of the things I think is really, really profound is the inflammatory response to a meal. If you're in like a stressed state, like I wonder about the difference between the potential inflammatory response to a quote healthy meal while in a stressed state compared to, you know, maybe a potentially more inflammatory meal, but in the context of, you know, no stress, social with family, with friends. I, I just feel like all of the comprehensive factors are so important. And I'm so glad you're providing that whole comprehensive picture. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, the the state in which you eat the meal will produce a completely different outcome. So you could have two of the exact same meals with two similar people. And I've seen this so many times with similar cases where one person like hates their food that they're eating. They're like stressed. They're like eating really fast, like at a toxic work environment. And they have a completely different response than someone that's eating with the sense of grace and lightness and enjoying and appreciative and thankful of their, their meal. It's so powerful. So at that point, yeah, the food medicine's part of the puzzle, but it's not the totality of that puzzle. For them, like their headspace and their heart space is also influencing the biochemistry as well. One thing I wonder a lot about, because, you know, especially with intermittent fasting and eating meals in different eating windows, a lot of our listeners on the intermittent fasting podcast practice a one meal a day situation where they're eating at night. And, you know, there's so much research about circadian rhythm and eating. And I, I do think that's really important, but I also wonder if perhaps, you know, if, if a person's following an intermittent fasting pattern where because they're eating at night, that's allowing them to eat, you know, after they've done all the work for the day and they have this, you know, this almost ritual or this habit around their eating and that's how they can eat in a relaxed state and digest. I just feel like the, you know, for that person, 
having that context in the eating might be an important factor to take into mind when looking at studies surrounding circadian rhythm and digestion. And I think about that (laughs) a lot because I know when I eat like earlier in the day, for me personally, I get stressed about it because I have like work I need to be doing and all this stuff. And I just find for me that the context of the meal is so important. Oh yeah. One thing you talk about in the book is you say to actually ask your body, what do you want? Or like, do you want this food? Have you found out to work for patients? And if you ask yourself, you know, like, do you want this food? Like what sort of reaction are you looking for in your body for whether or not you might react well to that food? Yeah. And that, I think where you're talking about, I wrote that it was towards, it's the end of the book. And it's when you start creating that intuitive eating pattern, you really are in sync and eat fully intuitively when you can really hear hear a still small voice of your intuition. That's not going to happen at the beginning. But when you get a rhythm of what works for your body, like women are exceptionally intuitive over men, generally speaking. And I like women will know I just need more carbohydrates on this days of my cycle, like around their ovulation, around their period. They're naturally going for more clean carbs and fruits and sweet potatoes and rice. And and then the other days of their cycle, they can go into a maybe a moderate carb or lower carb state. And they're just they're they're maintaining their metabolic flexibility because of intuition. So that's what I meant there. Like, okay, just don't be so strict as far as like this food dogma and like, oh, I can't have that. But just go with the rhythms of your biochemistry. Go with the rhythm of what your body is truly saying. That's on the other side of it. That's once you've called inf- calmed inflammation levels. That's when you sort of calm your gut responses and you really can get to a place of awareness and, and, and conscious awareness with food. So that's the goal. That's the goal. For some people, it's going to take weeks. For most people, it's going to take months to really get to that place, but that's the goal. Hi, friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like
like a barrier. I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it. And it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest-lived populations drink wine, the polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight, it's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, 
low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with dry farm wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try dry farm wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. 
but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Glad you clarified that timeline. So prior to getting to that goal, the actual, you know, elimination diet protocol, you, you have a core four to core eight foods to eliminate. And for listeners, you got to get this book because, you know, it's, it's all in there, you know, taking the quiz, how to figure out if you should do the four or the eight, but say the potential of all eight is grains, dairy with lactose and casein, added sweeteners, inflammatory oils, legumes, nuts and seeds, eggs, and nightshades. So I refer listeners to your book to get, you know, all the details on all these individually. I was wondering if I could just ask some brief questions I had about a few of them specifically. So like grains, for example, I think, you know, people are very aware of the, you know, inflammatory potential of gluten and, and things like that. Do you think that like, (laughs) My co-host on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast is very much a grain lover and a gluten lover. And I think there are a lot of people that, you know, eat these things and, you know, don't seem to experience any health benefits and maybe they do serve their body. I was just wondering what your stance is on grains versus gluten. And and is there maybe an aspect coming in with like conventional farming in America and glyphosate versus, you know, people will go to Europe and say, oh, I could eat gluten and I was fine. So gluten, do you think Everybody should be eliminating it all the time. Can some people do well with grains and gluten? I don't think everybody needs to eliminate it entirely. No, this is really the question that I'd like to explore in the book is bioindividuality. And that's the heart of functional medicine and what I do, consulting patients. So if I hung my hat on one way of eating for everybody, I'd be proven wrong all day long. So I had to keep an open mind intellectually. I had to keep flexible as far as my awareness of different variables to consider because it's not so I can't be so myopic and say it's just one thing for everybody. So for example, you mentioned the core four track and the eliminate track in the inflammation spectrum. The core four track are the four foods that are most likely to cause inflammation in most people. So it's not going to cause the same type of inflammation in all people. So it's really looking at bioindividuality that even these foods They may work fine for one person, but not for the next person. So the core four are the four foods that cause inflammation in most people. So it's grains and dairy. Third would be industrial seed oils. Like you said, canola oil, vegetable oil, high omega-6 industrial seed oils. And then would be fourth would be added sugar. So, and I have a nuanced conversation about the types of grains. Like you said, gluten versus not gluten containing grains. Is it the hybridization, genetic modification of certain grains? Is it the glyphosate spraying? All of that is these are variables to consider. And everybody's biochemistry is going to interact in different ways to different degrees, depending on the person and how much they're eating and how often they're eating it. And then same with dairy. Is it beta A1 casein or beta A2 casein in the goats versus the dairy, the cow milk? This we talk about each one, especially in the reintroduction and how to reintroduce these things from the least likely to be problematic to the most likely to be problematic based off of the data and clinical experience. And then obviously industrial seed oils and sugar are not really foods, even though probably some people would consider them foods, but they're more like additives to foods or ingredients in foods. But the eliminate track adds in the, the legumes. It's the core four plus four or more or eliminate 
if you need me to think of a play on words, guys, I'm your guy. I, th- I wake up in the middle of the night and just think of like how to like word things in books. But then you add the core four plus the nightshades, the legumes, the nuts and seeds, and the eggs. All those foods are healthy enough foods, right? They're not like the end of the world, but everybody's going to react different in different ways. Like I do fine with eggs. Somebody's not. Somebody, somebody I do fine maybe with rice and maybe someone else doesn't like it's this is bioindividuality this is functional medicine that's what i look at with my patients so to your point with grains i think all of those factors are something to take into consideration glyphosate hybridization of wheat and the overconsumption of it and the preparation of it like the soaking and sprouting versus the not so those are all things it's not just one thing but on the reintroduction chapter I am telling the reader, hey, if they want to try this back in, bring in the wheat, bring in the the gluten-containing bread, bring it in. See if your body loves it, see if it doesn't, because that will then give you feedback to know, is it worth it or not? If you love it, if you enjoy it, it, and if it makes you feel good, have at it. If you love it, but it makes you feel really lousy, you have to take inventory and say, is it worth it or not? And this is the whole sort of conversation that I'm having with the reader at the end of the book. Some people may determine, hey, if this doesn't make me feel good, but I'm going to eat it anyways, but at least they have agency and know this is the response they're going to get. And they can have that adult decision. And that's what grace and lightness in wellness is all about, which is what the whole book's about. This is about them knowing what works for their body and what doesn't but having the free will to choose what they want and not be bound by their hangriness and their insatiable cravings or their disillusionment as to what's working or what's not. That's the point of it. So I'm fine with somebody who wants to have grains and talk about sourdough and like the, like the better versions of it, generally speaking. But there are people without a doubt that have wheat, that have you know grains that are fine. And there's no negligible, you can't measure it on a, on a lab. You're not noticing it impact them in their life in a negative way. I'm cool with it. I don't have an agenda other than that person feeling great. I love it so much. Yeah. When I wrote my book, What, When, Why, and I had a guide to finding your quote, personal paleo diet, but it was similar situation where it's like, you have to find what works for you. Because if I ever say that there's one diet for everyone, please, I just let that never happen (laughs) because it's just so, so individual. And we just have to find what, you know, what works for us rapid fire question related to that. Do you find that actually herbs and spices, people with autoimmune conditions can usually tolerate or what are your thoughts on that? Cause I get a lot of questions from people about herbs and spices. Nightshades are on that list and eliminate if I didn't say it, it, it's nightshades are on there. So there's nightshade spices and then seed based spices like cumin, for example. Yeah. So those can be problematic, but it would be the nightshade spices and the seed-based spices. Those are what, what, what we would consider gray area spices. And I differentiate that in the book. But for the most part, there's many amazing herbs and many amazing non-nightshade spices that could be good too. But later on in the book, there's a sidebar and I talk about, okay, let's go through the system in the book. And let's say it gets you 80% better or you know, 90% better. And but you still have that like 20, 30, 10%, whatever it is of, of improvements, and you're stuck there. Maybe you need more time. And I mentioned that in the book, maybe repeat it. And it's what has taken years to get to where you're at now is going to take time to recover. But there are 
some people that need to go beyond the basics. And that's where functional medicine comes in. We can run labs, we can be more thorough, we can take it to the next level. And there's only so much personalization I can get in a book. So I can really kind of talk to them as that as them. And I talk about like the compounds that you mentioned in your food app, like the histamines and the salicylates and the oxalates and all these other things that we may need to take into consideration. But that's not to say everybody has to be worried about that stuff. No, but some people do need to be mindful of that stuff. And these are the things we can really take and put in specifics in a clinical setting and see what that person needs to do. Thank you. I love that. Big question for you on protein, especially given the context of, you know, not to say ketotarian has to be low protein necessarily, but I think keto diets in particular are often high protein. And I, I'm often contemplating the, the connection between protein and inflammation. First of all, so the inflammatory response to foods is it technically always to the protein in that food, like some sort of protein in that food? Oftentimes, you're right. It, oftentimes, it is some sort of protein, like the albumin in the egg white, the lectins in the plants, the casein in the dairy, the gluten. Yeah, it, oftentimes, it's the protein. Sometimes, it's not. Sometimes, it's the carbohydrates that can definitely cause reactions in some people. People have like fructose intolerances that can cause inflammation or FODMAP intolerances or, you know, fiber reactions that can cause inflammation, but it is oftentimes. Yeah. Cause for immune mediated, would that almost mandate that there would be some sort of protein aspect to it? Yeah, normally it is. And that's normally the molecular mimicry that's happening. It's some sort of food protein. So like, for example, what are your thoughts on like an almost low, low, I'm thinking of like, for example, like Kempner's rice diet, where it was basically like white rice, sugar, fruit, and fruit juice, and it radically improved health conditions. Do you think that was potentially the nature of just getting rid of the protein? Yeah, I would definitely say to say that when you're kind of mitigating a lot of variables, it can definitely produce a beneficial response for a time. But I ultimately want to be working with the underlying gut issues in the first place while you're untangling those immune reactions and kind of calming the system in general. You can kind of get somebody's head above water, so to speak, and then start just really actively mend what's dysfunctional. And you're right. I think with a ketogenic diet, a lot of times people aren't mindful of the macronutrients specific to that. And that's not what I'm talking about in the inflammation spectrum. You could be keto, high carb, low carb, really just doesn't matter. It's how do you do the best version of the way that you want to eat? So what's the best looking keto? What's the best looking carnivore adjacent diet? What's the best, whatever you want to call it, it's fine because it works good for you. That's what the inflammation spectrum is about. But with ketotarian, I was actually very specific about this because a true keto Genic diet is a high fat, moderate protein, low carbohydrate diet. But then it's about, okay, well, what is the best type of proteins to pick from? But when someone's fat adapted, someone that's producing beta hydroxybutyrate, the ketone that your body is endogenously making, it's actually ketosis is a very protein sparing diet. So you actually don't need that much protein in it. And we're focusing on clean proteins typically and proteins that aren't going to cause so much reactions in people. Yeah. So for listeners, definitely get ketotarian as well for all of the, the science and the more details there. One of the things you mentioned in the eight with nightshades is alkaloids and, and also the idea of like novel superfoods potentially being more inflammatory. So is there more of a potential for an autoimmune response to call them these novel foods that were maybe not a part of our 
mainstay diet. Do you think there's a potential issue for supplement forms of nutrients? I know like your toolboxes provide a lot of supplements to use to address specific issues, but are people with autoimmune conditions, do they have the potential to react negatively to supplements because it's a supplement form compared to a whole food? Oh yeah. I mean, it's a potential for sure. So for all people that are more like they're higher on the inflammation spectrum, we typically will have them phase in supplements very judiciously, very systematically lean into it. And honestly, and I say this in the book, maybe the person, the reader isn't going to take any of the supplements. Maybe their body's so reactive. You don't need that for now. Just focus on the foods for now, and then you can slowly lean in as it's appropriate based off of the toolbox. But I don't actually want to bring that many variables in for somebody that's very reactive. So sometimes you just have to keep it really simple to get things chilled out for a bit, and then you can lean into things later on. So you don't have to do too much too soon because that's really, especially for people that are higher on the inflammation spectrum, that's not the most sustainable approach. There's going to be a lot of variables coming in and saying, well, what is it? Like what's working for you? What's not? And you don't even know what's up and what's down. So sometimes you just have to take it low and slow and and lean into it very systematically. I love that so much because I think especially people struggling with, you know, reactions to food, autoimmune conditions, it can just be really overwhelming and a functionally minded practitioner might say, take all these supplements. And another one might say, take these supplements. And then I don't know, it's just, it can be very very confusing for people. That's why I really, really love the approach that you offer to to work through that. I could talk to you for like hours, so I'm going to stop myself. I just have like some really random super fire questions that will haunt me if I don't ask you them. Is there a difference between compounds which modulate the immune system versus those which downregulate the immune response? So for example, like is there a different mechanism of action taking something like fish oil versus aspirin versus an herb that quote modulates the immune system. Like it's, I don't know if I, I don't really know how to ask it. Are you familiar with the work of Ray Pete? I am not. No, he's a, well, I won't even go in that rabbit hole, but a lot of his work and his followers are actually not fans of uh, like fish oil supplementation and omega threes, for example, because of the potential inflammatory nature of polyunsaturated fats, even in the omega three context. But one thing I've read there is that, even like omega-3s, for example, might just be turning off the immune response when we should actually have it. I'm not being clear at all on this question. I just want to know if there's a difference between modulating the immune system and turning it off versus downregulating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there definitely is is a difference. Like, for example, adaptogens, for the most part, have a modulating effect. So cortisol is could be high, could be low, could be volatile like volatility high and then low and sort of erratic hpa axis response you can quantify this on a urine saliva test and kind of look at the cortisol awakening response and we measure this for labs and can see that specifically so an adaptogen generally speaking there's some nuancey stuff to this but basically for the most part it has sort of a balancing effect of this and the research shows this and this is what it's also traditionally been used as that is what I sort of refer to as a modulating effect on it, a balancing effect versus like licorice root is going to raise it up. It's not so much, it's not balancing things out or modulating it. It is a stimulating the HPA axis. So that's, that's one difference. I don't know if that answers your question. There's definitely different 
compounds, whether they're plant compounds or pharmaceutical compounds, that are going to have a different response in someone's biochemistry. But then you also have to extrapolate that to bioindividuality. Everybody's going to respond to that supplement. And a lot of my patients say things like, well, whatever the known mechanism of action is for a supplement is I, my body has the opposite response to it. And that's true too, is like, you can read it in a textbook or understand, understand all the sciencey stuff, but it's like, oh no, actually I can tell you about a patient that has the opposite response from that because of bioindividuality. And that's would be my initial thought to what you said. And how do you feel about aspirin? Is there potentially a place for taking an aspirin daily to keep inflammation down? And especially if somebody's at the beginning, if they're in a very high inflammatory state, do you think there's a benefit to taking pharmaceuticals to you know, stop or calm the inflammation while they're beginning to implement these dietary practices? I, I often wonder that, especially with like histamines. Say you're going on a low histamine diet to address that is there a potential benefit to when you first start that beyond antihistamines though in the beginning to like keep things a little less damaging from like the histamine load that you have at that moment? But yeah, like aspirin, because a lot of people will say like take an aspirin a day. Yeah, it's a place for it. I mean, we're not anti-medication in functional medicine. We just ask the question, what is your most effective option that causes you the least amount of side effects? And for some people, maybe aspirin fits that criteria. It's a preventative thing. Their doctor recommends it. It's really not causing any major problems. It's like a baby aspirin is a small amount. It's really, maybe it's just not something to worry about, honestly. But, you know, aspirin, for example, like historically where it came from, like the willow bark contain salicin, which is a, a compound similar to aspirin. So maybe they want to just take like a therapeutic dose of willow bark or something like that. Or maybe it is the aspirin. To me, yes, there's a place for those type of things. Even if it's like a over-the-counter drug, there's sometimes a place for it. And that's a conversation somebody can have with their doctor and see what is their most effective option that causes them the least amount of side effects. I love it. And then for your patients when and for listeners and readers, when they do your protocol and they do get to the reintroduction phase and are testing new foods, how do you encourage them to not have food fear about foods or about the reintroduction phase? And also, is it okay, say that somebody does your elimination protocol and actually finds that they really enjoy these foods? Like, can they, quote, stay like that forever? Or is there a need to return to a broader range of foods? That's a very good question. I, I do talk about that through the book because the foods we are focusing on in the either the core four track is for removing the four foods for four weeks and the eliminate track is removing the eight foods for eight weeks. And then we do reintroduction after for both. The foods we're focusing on during those either four weeks or eight weeks are very nutrient dense, very healing, very healthy, well-balanced foods. So if somebody wants to stay there and they enjoy the foods they're having and they don't miss anything, then maybe they could just stay there. That's fine. But I want people to have as much variety and flexibility and grace and lightness to their food as possible as their body will allow. So most people are going to want to try to reintroduce at least a few things, but by all means, they're not like lacking nutrients if they are sticking with the plan in the book. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely incredible. Listeners, you've got to get this book. It's just absolutely amazing. So this is really appropriate given everything. The last question that I ask every single guest on this podcast, and it's just because I'm just realizing how important mindset is when it comes to everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? I'm grateful for my family. 
I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for a lot of things, but I'm definitely grateful for my kids and my wife and put up with me, right? I'm obsessed with this health stuff and I talk about it too much and I'm busy with so much and I am, I could not do it without them. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Cole. This has been absolutely amazing. We'll put links to the show notes for all of this. For listeners, by the way, these show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash inflammation. And for listeners, how else can they best follow your work? Is there any other links or anything you'd like to put out there? Everything's at drwillcole.com. We offer a free phone or webcam health evaluation if people want a functional medicine perspective on their case. There's a lot of free content on the site. The links to Ketotarian and the inflammation spectrum are there too. And uh, Instagram, if people want to connect with me on Instagram, I'm active there the most. It's at drwillcole, D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Do you have any other books in the works? I am. This that's what 2020 is meant to, to be. I can't speak on it yet, but it's going to be cool. It's going to be cool. I can't wait. I wish I could talk about it. <laughs> oh, kill me. Okay. Okay. This is great. We'll have to bring you back, hopefully, for that. Yes. Back in 2021. Well, let, let, let this a little um, pandemic and election year pass, and I'll be back in 2021. <laughs> All right. So listeners, stay tuned for that. That's wonderful. I will talk to you then. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.